Well, good morning again. I'm super excited for today, as you can imagine. Um, my name is Pastor Jeff Strong. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just a few notes before we get started. If you could grab a Bible and turn uh, to Luke chapter 24, we're going to be moving through that text. And I encourage you to engage with it. Um, even if this text is very familiar with you, have a little pencil pen on the side. You can highlight stuff or uh, take little notes of things that jump out to you. And also, if you haven't done so already, I really encourage you to take advantage of the at-home worship guide that uh, our other pastor, Rick Penner, puts together. It's an awesome resource. I went through it this morning. It's just a great way to fill out a time of worship when we're not able to gather together. So it's been designed so that you could do it before this message or after, but um, we have Mark Hagen from the Harbor leading us in worship uh, in that uh, home worship guide. So thanks to Rick and Mark uh, for their effort in putting that together, and it's just an awesome resource. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll look at our text this morning. Jesus, we celebrate you this morning. And I pray that this would be a morning where your word, not just here in Nelson, but across the world, would go out with resurrection power. Call the dead to life and new life in your name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 24, about the first 49 verses. It's a long chunk of scripture. There's kind of three specific encounters that we're going to move through. I like Luke's gospel because at the start of the gospel, Luke says, I've compiled this by vetting a number of eyewitness accounts. So we're kind of reading a historical account of the events of that first Easter morning that have been vetted because Luke wanted to carefully put together a, uh, an account of all these things that have happened. So I like going through Luke and reminding myself that this isn't just a fairy tale, this isn't just a story cobbled together after the fact. It is a, a historical account that has been carefully vetted by someone who wanted to get the facts and the details right. Beginning in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then the women remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told the apostles. But the apostles didn't believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself 
came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along the road? And they stood still and their faces were downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the other rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight and they each asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. And they said, it's true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke the bread. And while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts raise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and blood as you see me have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, 
beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses to these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I hope I don't need to tell you that the resurrection of Jesus is the central event of the Christian faith. But I would also assert it's the most important event in all of human history. In fact, Paul, writing to an early Christian community in 1 Corinthians 15, says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then my preaching is useless and so is your faith. Everything hinges on the resurrection. R.A. Torrey says, without the resurrection, the death of Jesus is just a heroic death of some kind of noble martyr. But with the resurrection, it is the atoning death of the Son of God. N.T. Wright echoes the centrality and urgency with which we need to understand the, um, the, the impact and significance of the resurrection. He says, the bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't a take it or leave it kind of thing, as though some Christians are welcome to believe in it and others are welcome not to believe it. If you take it away, the whole picture is different. Take away the resurrection, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. You take it away, and Sigmund Freud was probably right to say that Christianity is just wished fulfillment religion. You take away the resurrection, and Friedrich Nietzsche was probably right to say that Christianity was simply a religion for wimps. But when you put it back, you have a faith that can take on the postmodern world that looks to Marx and Freud and Nietzsche as its prophets, and you can beat them at your own game with the Easter news that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. At the heart of Christianity is the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, sadly, the resurrection has sometimes only been used as a way to address the perennial question, is there life after death? But today, I'd like to consider that the resurrection not only answers the question, is there life after death, but it actually addresses what for many of us is a far more pressing question. Is there life before death? To a world that is tempted to believe that a finite existence where moments of happiness and pleasure can be grasped, even only for a fleeting moment, to a world that thinks that's the most that we can hope for, the resurrection of Jesus holds the potential to explode our small categories of reality and transform our vision for life as we know it. The resurrection declares, like nothing else can, that new life and new opportunity are available to anyone who gives leadership of their lives over to Jesus. And when that is done fully and sincerely, our lives are transformed in the following ways. First of all, the resurrection transforms our past. The resurrection transforms our past. 
many people live their life looking in the rearview mirror. And that's because they believe their past and the failures and mistakes that are back there are essential to who they are. They're a fundamental part of their identity. And they will be as they move forward in life. And maybe without the resurrection, that would be the case. But the resurrection shows us that God delights in big turnarounds. He loves to take a loss and turn it into a win. He loves to take a failure and seeming defeat and transform it into a victory. And that means that when we turn our lives over to Christ, we are gifted with a profound newness that allows us to move forward, not indifferent or ignorant to our past, but understanding that in Christ, our sin, our shame, our failures, our mistakes, our guilt, they no longer dominate and define us. We're no longer bound by them. We are free when we let the Lord of life break the chains and follow him into the future that he has for us. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. Everything old has passed away, and look, everything is new. That's an amazing transformative vision for how we understand our past. Now, it doesn't mean that everything before Jesus' grace and fulfillment is erased in the sense that it didn't happen. But again, it means that it no longer dominates and defines us. Our old way of life, our old pattern of living is crucified with Christ. And now, through resurrection power, it will actually be recycled into a future that brings glory to God. So not, not only will your, will your past not define you, but the resurrection says God will use the hardships and the heartaches and the failure and the mistakes to actually build a story of redemption into your life. That's amazing. And that happens when we yield our hearts to Jesus and then learn to live from the identity that he gives us, one rooted in his light and love and grace and his call on our lives. The second way that the resurrection transforms our lives is that it transforms our present. The resurrection transforms our present day-to-day -day lives in a few key ways. Number one, it transforms our experience of suffering and loss. Over the past year, loss and suffering and death have claimed way more ground in our lives and in our hearts than we probably could have imagined not too long ago. And I imagine we resonate with the disciples on the road to Emmaus with faces downcast, shoulders shrugging and saying, we had hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to deliver Israel. That was their way of saying, we had hoped for better times. We had hoped for a better life. We had hoped that life looks different than it does this morning. But their encounter with Jesus shows them, and it should show us, that despair, that in despair, we shouldn't just expect to be comforted by God, but God can actually take despair and reverse it and redeem it into a resiliency 
and an endurance that is anchored to a sure and, sure and certain hope. Josh McDowell writes, no matter how devastating our struggles, our disappointments, our troubles, they are only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain that you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. And the resurrection shows us that a wounded Savior walks with us. Right? Jesus comes into the presence of his disciples and says, look at my hands and feet. I'm now walking with you as a wounded one in your pain to, yes, bring comfort, but to also build anticipation that this pain, these tragedies, this suffering is not the end of the story. Our present becomes transformed by the presence of Jesus. And that means that the resurrection animates your life with real hope. The resurrection animates your life with hope. Now, I don't know if you, anyone watches Parks and Recreation out there. There's this really great scene where Ron Swanson is in a diner and the waiter comes and, and Ron Swanson says, I'd like all the eggs and bacon that you have. And the waiter goes to leave and Ron Swanson stops him and says, okay, well, just come back. I'm, I'm concerned that what you heard me say was, I'd like some eggs and bacon. What I said was, I want all the eggs and bacon that you have. And in that spirit, I want us to really hear not just what I said, but what I didn't say. The resurrection animates your life with hope. And I'm using that word intentionally because some people will hear the resurrection animates your life with optimism. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. To quote J.I. Packer, Optimism hopes for the best without guarantee of its arriving. And optimism is often little more than whistling in the dark. Christian hope, by contrast, is faith looking ahead to the fulfillment of what God has promised. As when the Anglican burial service enters the corpse in a sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He continues, he says, Optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever, ever actually come, but Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of one's life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. And with that kind of hope, you live with a new purpose. We become ambassadors to this new creation reality. We become signposts, however imperfect, of what God can do with hearts that are really surrendered to him. We become a light. And please remember that in the first century, when the Bible, uh, in the Gospels, or in, in, uh, in the biblical witness, when the Bible talks about a light, it's also talking about something that, that doesn't just provide illumination, but it provides heat. We need to hold those together because we live in an age now where you can have an LED light that produces illumination, but no heat. But in the Bible, when it talks about light, it's talking about illumination and heat. And that's what God plants in us. Jesus says, you're now the light of the world. 
We're lights to those around us. We reveal God's power as we bring restoration and healing and forgiveness and love and his soul-renovating truth into the lives of those who are still under the delusion that death holds the final say, that sin is actually life-giving, and that living for one's own happiness and one's own fulfillment is the most reasonable and highest pursuit. Lastly, I would say that the resurrection transforms your future. The resurrection transforms our past, it transforms our present, and it transforms our future in a radical way. The resurrection, indeed, to quote J.I. Packer again, reveals that the best is yet to come. N.T. Wright calls Easter God's future breaking into the here and now. What does he mean by that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. First fruits is an agricultural term. It refers to the literal first fruits that emerge in the late spring, early summer, and they're harvested, but they signal that more fruit is coming. Because we're disconnected from the land, that's not a metaphor that might land with us. But if you think of a movie trailer, that's kind of like the first fruits. When there's this big movie coming down the pipe, they release trailers, which are these tiny encapsulations, this tease, and we watch the trailer, and part of what makes the trailer exciting is that we understand that it's just a little taste. It's just a foretaste of a bigger story that is actually going to come into our lives. We just need to be patient and wait. And the resurrection of Jesus is like that. It's a trailer for new creation. It gives us a window into what the future holds for those in Christ. A resurrected material body. Right? Jesus says, look at my body. Touch. A ghost doesn't have skin and bones like I have. That's our future. Not to live in a ghostly spirit up and away. Not to live in a kind of an ambient disembodied consciousness, but our future is real life and a real body. But a body that lies beyond the corruption of sin and death, aging and sickness. The resurrection transforms our future because it reveals that those who are surrendered to Jesus can look forward to a future that strains the boundaries of our imaginations. At the end of the scriptures, in Revelation 21, we're given a future. We're given a vision of what this future looks like. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying 
or pain because the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down because these words are trustworthy and they are true. Christ is risen. Your sin is atoned for. Your shame and guilt are covered. Your debt has been paid. Since power over your life has been broken, death is defeated. The devil's schemes are undone and his claim on you annulled. And that means everything can change for you. Your past, your present, and your future. This Easter morning, hear the voice of the King, the King of Kings, who conquers through grace and love and resurrection power. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Hear his call and turn to him in faith and trust. As you move into this Easter season, friends and family of Nelson Covenant Church, may the good news of Jesus transform your past. May the good news of the resurrection transform your present. And may the power of the resurrection transform your future. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless.